Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dumb back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I have a list of 16 items this morning. Um, it's been a week, almost a week since I've last connected with you. It may have been a week exactly. And since then, I've had a birthday. And um, birthdays are a time for me to do deep reflections deeper. So I do deep reflections at the end of the year and I do it on my birthday. And then I do, um, I use the summer to also kind of do deeper dives and to do some internal housekeeping. So I'm, I'm, I just reflect a lot. (laughs) Um, and because I'm a person committed to growth, I think I'm always, I just take opportunities to just check in and say, how are things going? Where do we need to be? How do we need to calibrate? And that's just, that's a regular, regular practice for me. But my birthday usually will provide, you know, a a distinct type of reflection. And so I turned 51. Yay. (laughs) And there feels to be a stirring in my consciousness. Um, And I think... I think the unfortunate part of me moving forward in this reflection with you all today is that I, I did two reflections and I did I deleted them um, just because I, they were incomplete and I was still in a bubble. I was in a bubble and uh, the the bubble that I I was in I couldn't even find. Uh, the right words for the reflection. And I've done those reflections with you before where I, it's messy, it's scattered, it's bouncy because I'm really trying to circle in and find an access point uh, into the true reflection. And sometimes it takes a long time for me to figure it out. But I'm also maturing in this project of how I want to show up in it. And in that clarity, I want to limit, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but I want to limit the amount of scatteredness um, uh, that I give you. And I'm laughing because as a perceiver, Dom, that's not a commitment I can fully lock in. It's a desire. I just can't make it a commitment. Um, but anyway, I deleted those reflections because they were, uh, I got interrupted. And when I got interrupted, I was like, ah, it was too scattered. Ah, whatever. <laughs> so anywho. So because I've processed um, some of this and I didn't release it um, and I'm no longer in the bubble, at least I'm not in that bubble, um, I'm not sure how my reflection with you today is going to uh, roll out. But I will say that I have a list of 16 items (laughs) and um, some of that, um, some of those items were items that were um, on me to talk about earlier in the week or over the weekend then um and then some of it is new so i'm going to read the list to you and um and then i'll do my disclaimers and then we will move about accordingly to see if there are any yummies for me and for us rather um i'm in this list so give me one second all right here we go number 1 coaching upward coaching upward number 2 problem solving for comfort problem solving for comfort number three ableism number uh, ableism number four giftedness 
the bell curve and the tails. Giftedness, the bell curve and the tails. Number five, white fragility and white rage. White fragility and white rage. Number nine, the role of black people as pets. The role of black people as pets. Number 10, a lecture series, a lecture series. Number 11, prophecy. Prophecy, I'm always thinking when I read these lists and I repeat them. It reminds me when I used to do spelling tests for students. <laughs> okay, um, so number 12, the birthday surprise. There was a pro uh, I received a surprise on my birthday. So that's that. Number 13, today is my dad's birthday and I... Yep, I would love to just do a reflection on that, but that's on the list. Today is his birthday. Um, and I'm thinking about his birthday and his council. His council definitely um, is needed right now, even in the fractured relationship that we had. Um, if we would have been on the talking side of our relationship, I would have definitely found a way um, to access his point of view. And so I can't do that. And that's sad. And the fact that his birthday is here and I can't say that it's sad. But anyway, today's my dad's birthday. Number 14, knowing. Um, num okay, let me start over. 14, knowing harm as a... Mm, <sighs> I'm going to say knowing harm, and I'm going to leave it there because I, I don't want to tell you the full wording that I have there without really spending time unpacking it, and I don't want to fall into a rabbit hole. So I'm just going to say number 14 is knowing harm. Number 15, conflict of interest and change as a chief decision maker. Conflict of interest and change as a chief executive officer. And finally, number six, seeing that I'm truly an introvert and how I do politics as an introvert. So I'm political and I'm an introvert. <laughs> and uh, I'm learning there's a unique way that I, uh, that those two parts of me come together. All right. If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two that I use the most are Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ eat. I also identify as being from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist and have been doing the work for about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I identify as a critical race feminist, and that's because um, I'm very interested in what's called lowercase p politics. I'm also interested in uppercase p politics, but because of my interest in lowercase p politics, my political apparatus is always activated. It's not just when I go to the voting booth or I watch news or I go to some kind of um, hearing or I serve on the uh, jury 
It's what I am doing when I'm interacting with people on a day-to-day basis. And so as a critical race feminist, I have an intellectual sensitivity to how to power as it relates to the social world and social constructs such as race, gender, class, sexuality, and ableism because that's on my list. I don't usually say ableism a lot, but that is another one. Um, this project is unedited and it's unscripted. If you want to know more about me or this project, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. So I don't have a lot of time uh, to be in front of you. I have, a, go to, to have to go, excuse me, I have to go to a meeting. I've been doing that with my words lately. I know what that's about, but I can't unpack that now. Anyway, I have to go to a meeting this morning, and it is a political meeting, and it's a meeting where there's some people who haven't seen me in a while, and they've been curious about me and why they haven't seen me and things that they may or may not have heard, and uh, so I just want to be, like, getting ready for that. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think I want to talk about um, number 14, the one item that I said just knowing harm, and I didn't want to unpack it more without, because I knew I was going to fall into a rabbit hole. So I want to unpack it a little bit and see if I do fall into a rabbit hole. And if I do, that's where we'll stay, okay? So number 14 is knowing harm. That's what I said to you, but the full I, the full uh, wording is knowing harm as a gifted INTJ8. Knowing harm as a gifted INTJ8. I do not come in front of you and identify myself as gifted. That could easily be one of my disclaimers. As I read my disclaimers to you, I could say, I identify as a gifted INTJ8, but I don't. I don't identify as gifted. I've been told I'm gifted um, repeatedly. And, um, and when I was first told I was gifted, I did not take it as a compliment. I still don't take it as a compliment, but it is not as hurtful as it was when I first heard it. When I first heard I was gifted, I felt it was, um, a pejorative. I felt it was, um, suffocating. I felt it alienated me. It made me feel different. And I did not like it. And as I moved about to tell other people um, this, um, I don't know, I don't want to call it a classification, but um, this treatment on my brain, if you will, and I'm in tears, um, other people were like, yeah, you didn't know that? That didn't help. <laughs> so anyway... Excuse me, so I don't identify as gifted. It's just not something that um, I have felt comfortable with. I have mentioned it on this project a couple of times. And um, and the reason, it, it comes up when it's relevant. It only comes up for me when it's relevant as a framework to understand an experience. So you guys hear me moving about in between... INTJ and the Enneagram. I don't talk about both of those in every episode. Or I don't talk about them equally. 
There are times when the I and the Myers Briggs is the best framework for me to help me to understand something that's happening. And most of the time, um, as I'm guessing, it's about my internal world. I think, I'm going to sit with this a little more. As I process my inner world, I lean more into the INTJ, Myers-Briggs. But I can definitely see times when the Enneagram would help me to better understand my inner world. But mostly, I believe, um, and I'm going to start paying attention to this as a pattern, I believe that the Myers-Briggs is a tool for me when I'm trying to just understand what's happening, what happens to me internally. Um, and maybe because it's not about Myers-Briggs, maybe it's just about being an INTJ and I'm an introvert <laughs> and, um, and I need that internal in, interest in that. I was going to say internal introspection, but that feels like, um, that feels redundant. Um, but anyway, and I think I used the Enneagram as an eight to help me to understand my reaction to the outer world. Now, again, I can use the Myers-Briggs to help me to understand the outer world, but the Enneagram, I think, is best understood through a socio-emotional lens. Um, and I think it's just a tool that I use when I'm really, really focusing on my reaction to people. <laughs> yeah, it's probably my, it's my reaction to the social world. And, um, and that's, I don't know if that's related to just being an eight or if that's related to being to the, to the, the structure of the Enneagram. Now I will say I'm kind of giving you guys a, a tip or a hint into how I have merged those two theories together. Um, I've already packaged it together in a way that they're complementary. Um, but I want to, I want to output that under my name because I want credit for it when I do. But until I do that, um, I will also reference what I've shared in this project as under your NI Dom because I think, you know, even me saying I used any of the Myers Briggs as an internal um, housekeeping element and um, the Enneagram as an external housekeeping or I don't like the word housekeeping, but uh, framework. I think that's a unique positioning. I think that's a unique framing and I haven't heard anybody else say it. Now, if I hear it moving forward, I'm going to say, Hey, I said it first because that's what I do as a TE <laughs> and as an eight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, so anywho, um, why did I go down that rabbit hole? But I, um, Oh God. So anyway, I use the Myers-Briggs to help me to understand inner and the Enneagram to help me to understand my response to the outer. And, and I, and that's depending on what I'm reflecting, whatever it is I'm going through in the world, I choose those frameworks. Okay. And 98% of the time it works. I wanted to say 95, but I think 98% of the time, those two frameworks work perfectly. And then there are times when those two frameworks don't help me. 
or they're not enough, that there's a phenomenon that I'm experiencing with myself, that those two frameworks um, don't, they just don't help, or I don't have the level of sophistication with those two systems to make them help. So I can just see a few people that I follow as experts in those two systems, and I can I can almost see them as I talk about this particular unnamed phenomenon. I can see them going, oh, we can definitely use the Myers-Briggs to explain that. Or we can definitely use the Myers-Briggs to explain that. And maybe you can. But there's a third framework for me on giftedness that I think gets to it at a place that is very spot on, um, effective, and it. It's just straight to the point. It's efficient. And that is, you know, giftedness. And so um, I want to just spend a little time kind of talking about or revisiting it because I have already talked about giftedness on this project. Um, and so 14 and 4 both say giftedness. 14 is knowing harm as a gifted INTJ8. And then number 4 is giftedness, the bell curve, and the tails. And I'm going to try to push those two together and, and try to bring closure in about 15 to 20 minutes, so we'll see what happens. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we'll see. <laughs> so just as a brief overview of giftedness as um, as I have studied it. And there are different frameworks for giftedness, by the way. Um, and I think that's another problem with the gifted, um, just using giftedness as a framework. Um, the same problem people have with the Myers-Briggs is the, is the problem that they have with giftedness. It's the test. People really have a problem with the test, and um, I think that is the case with giftedness. And I also think it's a it's a problem with how giftedness is used. Just like it could be a problem in how Myers Briggs is used. If it's used by power holders, like if you and I've said this before to you all, is the is the instrument the problem, or is it the relationship the instrument has with power that's the problem? And in a way, that's an oxymoron because in, in many cases, instruments are designed by power holders because they have the means and the opportunity to design the instrument. And they are power holders. So they're going to design that instrument through their lens. And I would bet that most people who have a problem with the instrument or the application of some of these tools that we love, those of us who really, really appreciate Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, will, I think the people who don't, are really, they struggle with the PowerPoint of it. And I've had a wonderful conversation about power um, yesterday. It was just a powerful conversation. And I really wish I could have some of those conversations nope, upward. So I had the conversation with I would call subordinates, if you will. I don't like that term, but my CEO wants me to embrace that term. <sighs> Anywho, I don't want to talk about that. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, so in my talking to subordinates about power, it was really powerful. But it would be helpful to talk to my superiors about power. Um, but it just wouldn't work. And, but so the whole idea of co coaching upward is, I think, counterintuitive. I think it's counterintuitive. But that's number one on my list. 
And um, so I'm going to just put a little dot that I, I didn't flush it out, but I did connect to it. Okay. Um, so anyway, the, um, an overview of, um, the Enneagram, mm-mm, um, I feel scattered, y'all, hold on a second. I feel a little scattered. The overview, um, giftedness, um, is one angle. It's one approach that is out there about giftedness. And there are five traits of giftedness. And I've said this before, so um, if you've been following this project and consuming most of my content, then this is going to be on repeat. Go ahead and multitask right now. <laughs> it's okay. You have to pay attention. Um, so, but I'm going to just go over this quickly for people who might not have heard me say it. There are five traits of giftedness. And the theory is that in order to really classify, be classified as gifted, you have to, um, I mean, I'm dominant in three of three of the five at least. So um, I always struggle with naming all five of them by heart because I don't have any notes. But let's try: entelechy, perceptivity, sensitivity. Oh goodness gracious! Divergency. Got it. Excitability. Oh, I was like, I'm not going to be able to get it. Excitability. Starting over, entelechy, perceptivity, divergency, sensitivity, and excitability. I think I am 90%. I'm not as confident, but 90% sure that those are the five. And, um, yeah, I believe I'm, 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 I live in all five of those domains a lot. And there, if you hear that perceptivity is easily captured by your NI dominance, or excuse me, by NI dominance, by being a dominant introverted intuitive. So there's a link between perceptivity and um, introverted intuition. Um, sensitivity and excitability, I'm going to push those two together. I don't talk about this framework often, but I've also studied it. HSP for highly sensitive persons. And when you read about HSPs, you're really taught that's what they're talking about being you can be excitable and sensitive. Um, uh, most people, for whatever reason, treat that, that sensitivity as relating to emotions, but I only think that's a feeler. So when INFJs, let's just say INFJs, are also HSPs. They're going to be sensitive in, in terms of the feeling part. But I think an INTJ will be sensitive intellectually through the thinking part. I shouldn't say intellectually. Yes. Cog- oh, my gosh. Cognitively. And the only reason why I'm struggling because the feeling function in the Myers-Briggs is actually a cognitive function. It's not just emotional. It's a cognitive function. But the reason why I'm going to argue with myself and still say intellectually, intellectual sensitivity as it relates to an INTJ is because an INTJ is going to be more prone to put words to what it, what we are perceiving as NI DOMs 
We're going to be more prone to put words to it, uh, to put strategy to it, and to put theories to it, to do analysis on it. And that's the intellectualism, the intellectual part of it. But it's not to say that INFJs can't do it. I've been reading a lot about INFJs and and um, their whole intellectual engagement. Fascinating, but not an, I, I don't have enough to report out to you. But I have been studying it because I didn't, oh, I didn't tell you. Another thing that should be on the list, I got a book for my birthday. I bought, it was my gift to myself. And I went and purchased Gifts differing. Am I saying it right? Gifts differing. Hold on. Yes, gifts differing. <laughs> and I'm laughing. I just laugh because I actually want to take this book with me. I've been traveling. I mean, you know, it's just been with me. And so anytime I have a free moment, instead of me going to my phone playing Candy Crush or something like that, or I'm really into this word puzzle game. Um that I pull out the book instead. And so I'm going to take this book to this meeting. And so we're going to be with each other all day. And um, I'm pretty sure at lunch, I'm going to need some time to myself. And I'm going to take this book and read, start a new some reading. But I also know people are going to, I'm going to get hit with being antisocial. But <laughs> oh boy. But anyway, um, 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 so in I've been reading about I think that's why I've been reading about the INFJ because of the way this book is organized. Gifts differing. The full title is "Gifts Differing: Understanding Personality Type," and it's by Isabel Briggs Myers and Peter B. Myers. Um, and the way this book is organized is just uh, it brings it gives me a different way to look at Myers Briggs, uh, and I really appreciate it because I feel like I know a lot about Myers-Briggs already and so I think that's one of the reasons why I've been like yeah do I need to get that book but the way the book is organized is just um it's not completely looking at the 16 types in isolation it's two of the two chunks of the book at least as I've kind of gone in there and just perused it tackling or reading what I find most interesting for me at a given time is that it's grouping it's grouping um personality types this grouping them so one grouping would be around nt and i think they said there were four groups there uh nt um intuitives and intuitive thinkers and then the other grouping was about eight groups and it took it was about the dominant function as altered or as paired with the auxiliary so um, the the all the dominant cognitive function as yes as paired by the auxiliary cognitive function. So ENTJ leads with a t- with extroverted thinking, and ESTJ leads with extroverted thinking. So the book took both of those personality types, talked about how they are similar, like there's a sizable passage that talks about how similar they are and then goes into but this is how they are a little different because of that auxiliary function and while I knew that and I I do know it and I've heard people talking about it I don't feel like there's a lot of emphasis on how similar we are by our dominant function or how similar we are by our two middle traits 
N T, right? Fascinating, fascinating. So anyway, so I'm in a rabbit hole, y'all. Bear with me. So um, into it in um, INTJs and INFJs lead with uh, introverted intuition. So going to that part of the book, really reading how similar we are. I know we were similar. I know that we are. But I think the reading just amplified it like, whoa, we really, really are similar. And we're just flavored differently by that auxiliary function. Which is interesting because if you take the INTJ and the ENTJ, we share similar functions. We're similar there as well. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to have to go and get certified. And I might have to just go get another degree um, in what's called deaf psychology. Because it is deeply, deeply fascinating to me. Um, anyway, uh, the uh, introverted intuition um, is connected to perceptivity under the giftedness framing. And then I believe um, uh, uh, the excitability, excuse me, excitability and sensitivity um, is understood through HSP. This framework is out there called highly sensitive persons. But I don't know how to fit that neatly into Myers-Briggs or uh, the Enneagram. So if I put it in the Myers-Briggs for me, it would then say, oh, your FI is, you, you, somebody would go, oh, your FI is acting up. Well, FI is tertiary for me, introverted feeling. Well, then that's not, that's not as positive though. It's, um, because it would suggest that I'm loop, I'm looping or I'm what's called jumping the stack. So if, so when, when I use giftedness to help me to understand my sensitivity, or my excitability, excitability can be, um, for me, explained through any, the Enneagram as an eight. But the sensitivity, yeah. I guess the, uh, as an eight as well, because the eight shows where we're, the, excuse me, the inner enneagram shows where you're hyper focused, right? It could show where you're hyper focused, but it also can make it seem as that hyper focus is un, unhealthy. It frames it as unhealthy, so maybe that's what it is. Maybe those frameworks can show some of this in giftedness, but it doesn't show it in a positive way. And giftedness does, even though it's not really, really that, it's not treated as positive in our society. I'm feeling like I'm having a breakthrough right now. Because under my number four, I say the bell curve and the tails, right? Our society, we're so used to dealing with people who are familiar and that's the bell curve. When you look at the bell curve, you have a line and then it curves upward and it comes back down. Most people are clustered underneath the curve part. But there are people who are considered in the tails or they would be outliers. Now, our society has a way of vilifying outliers or those people who are in the tails. We vilify them. We problematize them. We, they're just not the average or as my CEO felt very comfortable saying to me, 
on repeat in a meeting I had with yesterday that I was odd. He said I was odd and I was abnormal. <laughs> this is what this this man, the highest ranking position person in the district, on repeat must have told me I was odd and abnormal six or six or seven times in our hour conversation. And he felt very comfortable doing that. And I I eventually said it with a little, I mean, with a level of hurt because I said eventually, because I mean, he said it the first few times I just sat there and like, okay, but because he kept saying it, I finally said, sir, I don't, I don't really know what you want me to do with that. But in all honesty, when I thought about it later, that's an element of ableism. And I'm going to put that number, I'm going to put a dot number, uh, number three on my list. That's a little bit of ableism. Because ableism says, it goes to this point, you're normal when you are in a way that I can relate to. Because I can't relate to you, I'm going to say you are abnormal. I mean, because technically I could have said, who are you? Who are you to determine what's normal and abnormal? Because he said, out of all of my years, I've never met anybody like you. And I could say, well, thank you. Thank you, sir. But do I, what do you want me to feel, shame? Because in, at the simultaneous, this is what's, what's so odd about that conversation. For me, it was odd. Because while you're telling me that, I, I mean, it's one thing to say I'm odd. He told me I was abnormal. <laughs> this is what my superior said to me, that I was abnormal. <laughs> Some of you on this podcast are probably like, well, but you are. That's fine. That's fine. Anywho, but at the same time of him saying that I'm odd and abnormal, you know what else he's saying? That I am, I have been able to do almost the impossible. I've been able to do for a school in two months what they've been trying to get some principals to do for years. And I was able to do it. He also said that he put me on a, another assignment. I told you guys about that back in the fall, the beginning of winter. And he put me on an assignment. And he said, you went in there and solved that in five minutes. You solved it in five minutes. And I, okay, <laughs> I did do it rapidly, but it wasn't because I'm... I'm, this is my area of expertise. Like, I don't think he understands what my PhD is for. I don't think that they understand that what my PhD is for. And, I, and they may need to get that. I don't, they may need to get the memo on that. I don't know why they won't go look it up. Because it's public information. But anyway, that's why I was able to do it in five minutes. But I'm also good at what I do. And I've been invested in it for 30 years. So, anywho. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to have mistakes. It doesn't mean that. It just means that the sum total me is good at what I do. Okay. So while he's calling me odd and abnormal, he's also recognizing that I'm doing something that no one else, I'm, I'm producing good work. There's something no one else has been able to do. And other people recognize it. And I guess my name was mentioned 
which really bothers me that he's making me hyper visible. He's putting me in a grossly visible space. And as an introvert, I don't want to be that visible, especially when I can't control the narrative. I can't control it. And he mentioned my name and he said twice that the room, I got a round of applause from the full of the room because of what I would have been perceived to do. I don't even know if I've done it. So, so this is what has me thinking about giftedness this morning. Yes, I could explain it through the eye. I can explain what I've done as an INTJ. And I can also, uh, I could explain not the effectiveness of what I've done as an eight, but I can talk about why I've, I call myself a, I have to call myself a porcupine when I'm talking to him and my other superiors because they're talking about, you know, he also said I was rude. He called me rude several times. I mean, and he called me, um, he said I made them, these other superiors uncomfortable. And without, without considering the fact, and he also talked about white fragility. So he didn't link the fact that these other superiors are white people or white women and white people are uncomfortable with me. So it's, it was a very, very chaotic mixed message that I got from him. Like, well, how do you tell me about white fragility? And then at the same time saying that I'm rude. These people are seeing me as rude. And then also that they may be um, intimidated by me because I'm, I'm smart and I am, but I, and I have a PhD and I'm a black woman. Like what? Oh, and calling me abnormal. What? I mean, just what? <laughs> I don't even know what to say. So, you know, I never mentioned, I don't mention his name. I don't mention the, the, the district I work for. I don't mention the city I work for. I mean, I live in. So, you know, all of this is just me not talking about him. It's not about him. This is a, my journal where I'm talking about what somebody said to me. And he also made a comment about, you know, no one wants to be analyzed based on their personality. And I'm thinking to myself, I never, I've never analyzed you. But it is known in the district that I study personality. So now that's going to be a problem. But if I wanted to analyze you, I could. And I could come on a podcast and do it. But I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to analyze you in terms of the different frameworks that I have to analyze you. It would not call you odd. I have not vilified this man. But for whatever reason, he felt like he should do that. And each time he does it, he does it in the presence of other people. Anyway, I'm going to bring closure. I'm going to take my odd, abnormal ass to this meeting, okay? <laughs> but anyway, so when we are so used to dealing with people in the um, in the bell part, the cluster where pe- where the majority of the people are, where the norm is, um, our society just has a a real sucky way of dealing with the people in the tails, the people who are outliers, and most of the time we problematize those people in the tails. And, and this is what I love about Myers-Briggs for INTJ that I appreciate better than saying giftedness because it's just a more common, acceptable treatment. It's been used in corporate America. So people, it has greater acceptance, right? And in the church, 
the Enneagram, in, in religious settings, the Enneagram is fairly popular. Although, um, there's still a, there's a problematizing nature to the Enneagram. But one of the things I love about Enneagram is that it talks about being healthy and unhealthy baked into that system. The, the Myers-Briggs assumes, and that's what the book says, it assumes healthiness. The Myers, the Enneagram does not assume health. It says, okay, these are, these are the different states of health. And that's awesome. That's awesome. So anyway, um, I think the last part of that I'm going to say here is, um, I do want to just say this about ableism, um, because one of the things about the bell curve is, um, it's not just that we deal with people, um, who are familiar with us to us and, um, I think I guess I'm saying I said it already. We literally find I think we don't we not only judge okay, here it is. We not only judge the people in the tales in a negative way, we create systems that will handicap them. Handicap us, because I feel like I'm in the tails. And to cripple them. And I don't always like to use that word handicap and cripple because it can be a pejorative, but like when that is an act. When crippling is an act, not being crippled, not being crippled as an inherent quality, but being crippled by someone else's doing. I wasn't born crippled. You crippled me by your your lack of understanding, by your lack of inclusiveness, by your intolerance. You crippled me. You problematized me. You're create. You're saying if you don't do it this way, if you're right-handed, and if you don't learn how to use these scissors, we built these scissors for a right-handed person. And if you don't learn, I think I think that's true about scissors. But there are other things in our world that's built for right-handed people because right-handed people make up the majority. If you don't have a right hand, that's your problem because we are we're building this for the people in the bell curve. We're not going to do any building for you. Because that's unnecessary. That's what people inside of the bell curve, that's what they do. But you know who we should problematize? If we're going to problematize anybody, we should problematize people in the bell curve. The majority. Because you lack, those people can lack empathy. They can lack tolerance. They can lack foresight. They can lack compassion. Who's the problem? Who's abnormal? Because we were all born with the ability to, well, I shouldn't say that. I'd like to believe spiritually we're all born. That's, I know it's not true, but to be compassionate. I believe we are children of spirit. But I, I guess I, I feel like I'm going to go somewhere. I don't, I can't back it up. So I don't even want to know if I can back it up with my own beliefs. I don't know if I even believe that we're all born good anymore. Anyway, let me get off my soapbox. Okay. And so anyway, um, I think the last thing I want to say is this, um, my, um, heart coach, cause I incidentally had a meeting with her schedule for yesterday. So it was perfect. I said, let me, let me share with you a conversation I had with the CEO of the organization. Um, and so we talked about that. We talked about, so I, I remember saying, do you think I should share with him about giftedness? 
And she said, absolutely not. He's going to, he's going to vilify it. Not. He said, not. Don't, don't do it. She said not to do it. And I was like, okay, I can see that. <laughs> um, we also talked about, um, perceptivity under giftedness. I, oh, I started breaking each of those down. And I don't have time to break them all down. I think I stopped at perceptivity. Uh, but perceptivity under giftedness is that we can see into, like, we can see nuance, depth, and breadth. We can see a territory at a far greater range than people in the bell curve. So we just see a far greater range and depth, the nuance, and we see interconnectedness. See, introverted intuition is that, but most people don't talk about introverted intuition as a, and maybe it's not. Maybe I have that as a, as a gifted person who is dominant as a, in my perceptivity. You know, perceptivity is my thing, but I, I believe, I want to argue that if you're an N.I. Don, we have it. And by the way, the picture that I use for my podcast is for that, is to show how the interconnected web in which I see the world all the time, all the time. I don't think I've ever explained that photo um, that I use for this project. And so my heart coach asked me, what did I, did I see in interrelatedness between giftedness and me being an Enneagram 8. And again, I for more or less have looked at uh, giftedness and INTJ. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at giftedness and the 8. But what she was wondering is because 8s are um, about control, like not, we control, we can control, like, okay. We can control purely because we don't want to be controlled. That's purely what it is. I don't want to be controlled. But how we control is different. So as an INTJ, I'm going to control systems and structures. And I, if an INFJ were an eight, there's going to be more of a controlling people element or any of the eights that are people, um, oriented or extrovert. They're going to, they're going to experience, they're going to do controlling different. But as an introverted, uh, thinker, Excuse me, as an introverted, intuitive thinker, um, I do control structurally, um, systematic and systematically, <laughs> and it's not people oriented um, as much. I'm pretty sure there's an element of it. But she asked me, my uh, my orientation, not con- so. She talked about the AIDS control, but the reason why we do control because we also see threats. Is that on my list too? Well, we see threats. We see problems. Eights can see, eights can see places where they could be controlled by the outside world. And that control translates to us as harm. So we see it. We probably look for it. We scan the, we scan the room. Where's the harm? I don't think we consciously do it, but what we will do is we become aware of where's the power and how is that person treating power? And ultimately it's about not being vulnerable underneath someone's power, um, underneath someone's power. 
So what my car coach asked me last night was, do I think that my giftedness in terms of perceptivity gives me a heightened sense of seeing PowerPoints around um, um, harm? That I can see points of harm at a microscopic level and other people can't see it. But because I'm an INTJ 8 and an, an 8, I'm going to move into action. And people don't know why I'm moving into the action. They don't really know why I'm moving into action. And so I'm not just moving to action because I see power. Then I can, oh, I can explain to you, I'm seeing harm, the potential of harm structurally at a nuanced level that other people can't see. And it all, it can translate out to, oh, you're itch paranoid. And that's what they say about INTJs, right? We can be paranoid, right? We can get into these conspiracy theories. Can we? Or, I mean, is it that? Or is it that we can see something that you, that the people in the bell curve can't see? I don't know. So, but I thought that was a really good um, question that she asked about my ability to, to see harm and systems for harm and um, points of harm at the gifted level. And uh, I told a person that I had had uh, some a disagreement with um, and we hadn't talked in a while and, and we talked on my birthday and I used a metaphor with her that I want to share with you um, about being a gifted INTJ8 that can see harm. When I was talking to this friend of mine, we weren't talking about harm. We were talking about actually vulnerability, which is the same. And she challenged me about, can I make myself vulnerable? And I'm, and it's always interesting when people want to dictate me being vulnerable. Because the guy last night, the CEO last night said, why don't you just make yourself a little more vulnerable? And I'm thinking to myself, why? <laughs> why? Why would I make myself more vulnerable if you are not committed to protecting me when I'm vulnerable? For understanding me when I'm vulnerable? Why do you need me to be vulnerable? What is in it for you? Anyway. So I'm going to use this, I'm going to share this metaphor that I shared with my friend. I think it's a perfect way to wrap up this reflection. I said to my friend, I'm learning to be more vulnerable. I'm actually, I, I actually want to practice it because I want to have intimate relationships, for intimate friendships where vulnerability is the key. Is a, I don't need it in all of my friendships, but I want some friendships because I, I, that's the piece that I'm struggling with. So I used to have vulnerable-based friendships, but it was about um, trauma bonding. Well, since I'm not trauma bonding anymore, I don't have that intimacy anymore. Well, I don't want to do trauma bonding-based intimacy, but I do want to do intimacy. And i got to practice it for myself so that I can better identify healthy intimacy bonding in other people. So it's something I want to do. But... My way of doing intimacy is going to be different as an INTJ. I am not going to cry my, my vulnerability 
I'm not going to bemoan it. I'm not going to linger in it. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not because I'm not even going to. I'm not. I just I'm not going to even think it. I'm going to move into action. So I said, it's like being cold. I'm not going to just sit around and go, oh, I'm so cold. Oh, I'm really cold. I'm going to go, oh, I need a hat. I need a gl- I need gloves. I need scarves. I need a scarf. I need to go get a coat. Now, underneath me saying I need to go get a coat, a gloves, hat, scarf, is the fact that I'm cold. I'm not denying that. But I'm not sitting in the being cold, waiting for someone else to recognize it, for them to come to do something about it, or for them to figure it out. So my vulnerability is, here's the vulnerability for me, is to say, I need a coat. I need a scarf. It's not saying I'm cold. It's me saying, this is what I need. That's deep. It's still deep to me. And most people don't want you to come to the table saying what you, to be clear on what you need. I don't know why. Somebody tells me clearly what they need. I'd be like, okay, baby, we're good. I got it. So anyway, that's, that's a something else. Anyway, I gotta go. <laughs> but, um, so in terms of being vulnerable, um, and intimate, you know, in having intimate relationships based on vulnerability, for me, being vulnerable is for me to say, this is what I need. And underneath me saying what I need is some kind of as it, um, existential condition for me. I'm cold. I don't want to be harmed. I'm going to see the points of harm and I'm either going to withdraw, work, walk around, or transform the environment. Again, I'm either going to withdraw, work around that harm, or transform it. Those are the only three ways I know to be. But to sit there and just be subjected to the harm, I can see it. And mo- and and like my assistant principal said to me yesterday, he said, your intuition has served you well in life. I was like, boom. And, and the thing is, once people work with me, this is one of the things why I know I'm not an NE, like why I need to be in a steady place. I can't really bounce from people. I can, I might bounce from project to project, but I can't bounce from place to place for a project. Because I need people to get to know me on a nuanced level. Because when people really get to know me, they'll go, your intuition is right. People, when they first meet me, they don't know that. Why would they know that? But after they know me for a while, they know it. They're like, yep, she predicts that. If she's saying it, it's true. I don't see it. They'll go, I don't see it. But if she sees it, it's there. Because most of the time, after time, after a while, it reveals itself. The thing that I can see up before it comes, it reveals itself. That's another thing about N.I. Dominance. So anyway, I don't know what I'm going to name this because I talked about giftedness. <laughs> I talked about um, perceptivity. I talked about introverted intuition. I talked about the bell curve. I talked about <laughs> the tails. Talking about how we treat the tails and the assumptions and the maneuverings that we make in under the bell, under the curve rather. And so, um, all of that, I'm having a hard time linking it up as into one theme. 
But if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about all of that that I just mentioned relates to a conversation that you've had in the world, please take this link and share it out. Um, if my moving about in it is uh, has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. I have a couple of people who are now reaching out to me, sharing with me their thoughts for the assignments. The assignments are always for you. You know, I don't want people to feel like you have to give it to me. It's private. But if you want to share it, I'm here for it because it just helps me to continue thinking about my own growth. So if you want to share the homework assignment that I give you guys, feel free to, but you don't have to. Um, let me give you your assignment. When have you been treated or told that you were abnormal? And maybe the person didn't say that to you directly in that wording, but they treated, they treated you as though you should be something else as related, as relating to some kind of norm. And it'll, it'll sound like this. They'll say it to you like this. Well, most people do this. Well, when, I mean, me and my, me and my friends are, I've never experienced that. And there's usually a disdain attached to it. When have you experienced a disdain from a person about who you are? Simply because you were not what they have experienced. Simply because of that. Not because you hurt them. Not because you stole money from them. Not because you slept with their wife or their husband. <laughs> Simply because you are not like the people in which they were familiar. And now you're the problem. You're abnormal. You're difficult. You're odd. Because you're different. Because you're in the tails. Whether you're gifted, whether you're an NIDOM, whether you're an HSP, highly sensitive person. Whether you are left-handed whether you're queer, any of those, any of those things of being different and they've been experienced and experienced a disdain, a disdain because you're different. I think I'm going to name this the disdain or abnormal or just either an abnormal or disdain because one of those, but anyway, when have you been, when have you been treated that way and what did you do about it? Did you absorb it? Did you internalize it? Did you did you embrace it as your identity? I hope not. Because if I ever meet you, we're going to have to dance it out. We're going to have to box it out. We're going to get that out of you. You're going to have to detox. And you may not even know you did that. Because that's how, that's how the social world works. That's the socialization process. Until you become conscious of the harm. Become con, and that's harm. When someone vilifies you, demonizes you, problematizes you because you're different, that's harm. Do not embody that. Do not embody that. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.